0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Nechammer Price about her new book, Tribal Blueprints, 12 Brothers and the Destiny of Israel, published by Magid in 2020. The Jewish nation begins with a collection of 12 brothers and half-brothers, linked through their father, Jacob. From these close, familiar beginnings, each develops into a distinct tribe with unique characteristics and destinies that have indelible imprints on the rest of the Tanakh. Tribal Blueprints examines each of Jacob's sons, revealing their individual stories in Genesis and the impact of their shifting places within the family. In this volume, Dr. Price takes the reader on a journey through the biblical narrative, looking anew at the ancient stories of Genesis to uncover a new appreciation for the special role of each of the 12 tribes, who together form the nation of Israel. Nahamba, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: I appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, So... I, I play many roles within the community. I'm a teacher of Torah. I have been teaching at Stern College for, I think this is my 20th year there. I teach both Halacha and Tanakh. Um, I am also the director of GPAT, which is the graduate program in Advanced Talmud and Tanakh Studies, which is a graduate program for women who want to sit and learn after college. I'm a graduate of that program as well. So I have been a director there now, I think this is my ninth year, uh, and it's a program where I also teach Tanach within that program as well. I'm also a Yowetta Halacha in many communities in New Jersey, which is a female who uh, advises in terms of family purity and Taurus Mishpacha and Mikvah and Nida and all the different rules uh, between husband and wife. Um, and it is a privilege. It is a privilege to be here.
0: Thanks a lot. Going to the book itself, how did you come to write this book in specific?
1: Well, I happen to be a lover of Tanakh since a very young age, and I've had different influences in learning Tanakh in more the traditional way of learning Tanakh um, by, you know, asking questions and looking at Mepharshim versus being creative and looking out of things, you know, through, you know, different ways and different approaches. And I was certainly had a very strong background in learning from a young age from many of the Rabbeim, from Gush Etzion, uh, Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, Yoni Grossman, and Rafael ben reading their materials. And I really got very excited when learning Tanakh, learning about how you can see different approaches within the text. There's always so many multiple ways to look at things, so many nuances within the characters, and it's something that really excites me uh, to be able to teach Tanakh in that way, to be able to see multiple approaches to every single story in Tanakh. This book in particular um, was inspired, and it took 20 years to get to where uh, the it became a book, uh, I was inspired by this idea all the way when I was back in seminary in M.M.Y. Uh, so many years ago, where I used to just sit at night and write and think about you know different developing of different ideas. And the Shvatim hit me that uh, the Shvatim, the Twelve Tribes, are so fundamental to learning Tanakh because as you learn through the stories, not just in the book of Genesis, not just in Sefer Breshi, but as you look through all of Tanakh, it's always referencing what tribe people are from, you know, where where they're located, you know, and even there are some Sfarim, like in Sefer Shoftim in the book of Judges where you'll find you don't even know the name of the person, but you know the tribe of the person. And I started to see that there's got to be significance to understanding the tribes. If I know that somebody's from a certain tribe, there's something I'm supposed to know about them just from revealing the tribes. And therefore, I started to do a lot of research of looking into not just their stories in Breshi, but throughout Tanakh. And over time, this developed into a shir, which I gave that year in seminary. It developed into multiple shirim, series of shirim, into a curriculum that I gave at Stern College, and I still give at Stern College, and then became this book.
0: How is one to understand and we'll probably get into specifics as we go through some of the tribes and look more in detail. How is one to understand these different characteristics that start with the actual 12 tribes and then go forward in history to the different people in those tribes? Is it something metaphysical about their very nature? Is it something at a literary level? How do we understand these these different characteristics.
1: So I think it's all, meaning I think that it's true. And we believe that there are things that are passed down, you know, throughout a family and, and, you know, there's something about, you know, how the way that one behaves and it copies to some extent, the way their parents behave and their grandparents and so on and so forth. But what you see very clearly in the tribes, when you start to look at their stories in Breshi, there's a very specific personality that's given to each one. And it's reflected in the blessings of Yaakov and the blessings of Moshe where it's not just about the past, but it seems to be reflecting on the future. And therefore already, just from looking at the words of Yaakov and the words of Moshe, we see that this is not just telling you what you've done, but this is telling you what your tribe is going to accomplish. And therefore, we very much see that this seems to present for us these 12 different stories that we need to follow throughout the rest of the Torah as well. And sadly, since we don't know what tribes are all from, it doesn't really help us as much, you know, in the world of today, other than if you're from Levi, um. But it certainly helps us to understand Tanakh in a very different level, because as we play out these different tribes, you're correct, there's literary comparisons between people from the same tribe that all of a sudden we look at those stories and there's so many parallels. And when you realize their tribe is parallel, it adds a whole new layer to understanding the literary parallels. But it also gives us an understanding of the personalities of the different people, of why they act the way they do. And for me, very often, I'll reference things like, oh, that's so Yehuda, oh, that's a done thing to do. And unless you understand the personalities of the tribes, that doesn't make any sense. But once you see it through, there are these distinct personalities of why everybody acts the way they do. I all of a sudden understand why at different periods leadership has to be from one tribe versus the other. Or when leadership comes from a specific tribe, it goes in a certain direction because these are the patterns that are being developed by the themselves, by the by the way that these tribes are described.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate that. I think it helps clarify what you're trying to do in the book itself. The book is part of the Magi Tanakh companion series. Is there something specific that unifies all these books? Or is it just the case that each book addresses different biblical themes
1: so the series is I think there's two different parts to the series one is take a book of the Torah you know so there is a book on Genesis and a book on Exodus right I'm not really in that series even though my style of writing is very similar to that the uh, to that series and I'll be honest current publishers is what inspired me to write this book because the Matthew Miller from Cohen publishers actually came over to me one day and said you have a book in you you have to write it for me and I never thought of myself as a writer, I never even thought that I would write a book. But when he handed me his card and said, you're gonna write me a book, this was the result of that. So it certainly fits the entire methodology and what all those books represent. But there's a second part to their set, which is books that kind of cover numerous and numerous books of within the Torah. And I fit within that where this spans not just Breshi, but all of Tanakh in general. And they do have many books that fit that type of theme where you're presenting a thesis or you're presenting, you know, a theory about Tanakh, you know, they have them on the maps, they have them on, you know, different leadership. They have them on different topics. And this is really a topic that spans all of Tanakh. So it fits very nicely there, but it has a very specific theme of understanding these the characters through uh, the book of Bresheet And then a second chapter for each character on how that therefore enlightens us to the character throughout the rest of Tanakh.
0: I appreciate that. The I, I enjoy it before opening up the pages of the book and getting into the content to look at the cover. And it's always difficult because this is a podcast. There, there's no video in the actual final format. However, we'll do our best. I, I, could you tell us a little bit about the, the cover design choice? Was it your choice? Was it someone else's? Were there other ideas? And then also with the, the title, just, was this the first title? Or were there other ones? Would love to right. dig in.
1: So, so the cover itself is, uh, I happen to love tremendously. They uh, sent me very, a lot of options to the cover. It ends up, I really wanted something very colorful, very beautiful, very catchy. And I love the idea of how so many shuls have in their windows the imagery of the 12 tribes. And we wanted to capture that by actually having a drawing that could really be straight from a window of the different tribes and what they represent. And that's really what I wanted, a cover that captures that this is about all of Am Yisrael. Even though in the book, there's certainly highlights certain tribes over others in terms of leadership, the book is really about how Am Yisrael is composed of 12 tribes, and all 12 tribes are needed, um, and they're all important to be part of Am Yisrael. So the picture represents that all 12, they all have equal space on this cover, um, but certainly I also wanted it to be beautiful and capture the eye. The title uh, was actually fun to create because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to capture in the title, but I had a group of my students who uh, ended up helping me in terms of editing the book and also took my classes. And we were sitting around my Shabbos table and we spent an hour just throwing out words and throwing out what could be the title of this book. And I have to give her a shout out and credit. Talia Malotsky was sitting at my table. She's not my very, very good friend. And she said the words tribal blueprints. And the second she said that the table went silent and we all went, that's it. That's the one. Because it captures everything I wanted to say, because it's about the tribes, but it's the blueprint to Am Yisrael. It's what Am Yisrael is going to be represented by the stories of the tribe. And that's how the title came about.
0: It's a great title. I think it's a great Thanks. description of what's in the book and gives a little bit of a taste for what you're trying to do. You mentioned before that the structure is you go through the, the different tribes, uh, and then you discuss and and have different stories or, or personas from from later within Tanakh, and, and then describe uh, some of those different characteristics of the the, the tribes how they they are displayed within those later characters. Were there any other potential structures that that, that you could have done? You could have structured it in different ways, or was this really the one that you thought? made the most sense and and you went with it from the get-go.
1: But I think why I structured it this way, and just to be clear, each tribe has a chapter, one full chapter, that's the tribe and sheet And then they have one full chapter, which is everybody beyond Safer sheet and how it reflects what we just said in the chapter before, having that same personality. And there are some exceptions to that, which I'll talk in a second. But the reason why I wanted to write it this way is because I find when discussing the tribes, most people put them all together and they'll discuss. By story, So when we're discussing, let's say, the selling of Yosef, so then we'll discuss what was Reuven's role, what was Yehuda's role, what was possibly according to Chazal Shimon and Levi's role, what was Yosef's role, right? But we put that story together. So I thought it would be fascinating to flesh out each story of just the one character. What did Reuven do in that story? What did Reuven do in earlier stories? What did Reuven do in later stories? And in that way, to just capture one full chapter of just Reuven, to really understand how the Reuven story develops from one to the other. So to me, it was clear that that was the way I wanted to write it. The issue, of course, came about in, let's say, the second two characters, Shimon and Levi, where their story in Sefer Brashid is a joint story. So in that sense, I had to do Shimon and Levi together, at least for the first chapter, then separate because Shimon has other stories than Levi does not in Sefer Breshi or references to Shimon other than, you know, the Shimon and Levi story of Shem and then the blessing or whatever you want to call that, that Yaakov says to them at the end of Sefer for Bresci, Shimon has other occurrences. And then in the next chapter, I could divide between Shimon and Levi of the future of Shimon and Levi. And the same was with the children of the maidservants. We had to combine them for some stories because often they're referenced as the four of them together. But then to look at, is there anything I could say about each one separately? So the the chapters are not perfectly always one chapter, you know, about each one and then one about them in the future. But I structured it that way because I thought that was the unique message that I was trying to give over that they each have their own story don't put them all together keep them as their own unique story
0: I think that was done very well, very artistically and one of the things I really enjoyed was that you saw different stories different characters from different lights and different perspectives depending on the chapter there's some movies I've seen where it's, it's one particular story and then you see it from different perspectives I think there's also books written in such a style I think that was a great way to See different sides, different perspectives throughout the book. And I think that was really, really well done. One of the things we've talked a little bit already, but I want to elaborate upon is the sources that you use. So you mentioned Chazal, so the rabbis. Of course, we've mentioned the biblical text itself. What are the different sources that you're using, and how are you thinking about them? So another way to ask the question to think about it is there's different interpretive methods, there's Peshat, there's Drash. What Are you doing Pashad? Are you doing Josh? How are you using the rabbis to inform your interpretation? Multi-part question, but I think it's, it will be a good way to jump off the conversation.
1: Absolutely. So the book represents the way I teach. And uh, certainly this is a course that I teach, and I taught it as a course before writing the book. And I find actually for all my writings, I teach it first, I write it afterwards. And even though writing and teaching are totally different, the style to some extent is the same. And yes, there's of course the differentiation between Pshat and Drash. But what I think a lot of times people misunderstand is that they look at at Drash, let's say, as there's one perspective in Chazal. There's one perspective that the rabbis have. And that's not true. The rabbis have so many multiple perspectives. And a lot of times their perspectives come through the Pshat, the simple reading of the text. So my goal when teaching, especially Pshat versus Drash, is to actually show the multiple the levels of shot and the multiple levels of drash and how you really can build one onto the other. So the way that I normally do teach, and I think what's reflected in the book is that we start with the text because the text itself has so many ambiguities, has so many different ways of looking at it. And then what we find is once we discover what the text is providing for us, the different languages, the different times where there's an ambiguous pronoun, the parallels between stories. I love parallels if that wasn't clear from the book, the parallels. From one story to the other, or parallels between different characters. It actually gives you so many different layers. And then once you're done with looking at all those different layers, you realize that Hazal normally does touch upon all those different approaches. And then the Mafarshim start to sign up, you know, side up on these different sides of how you're going to look at the story. And therefore you can have multiple ideas that are all coming through the pshat. You can have multiple ideas that are layered upon the midrash. And the way that I normally do teach is we start, of course, with the midrashim, we move to the mefarshim that we have in the text, you know, the mikros gadolos, the Torah Chaim, and all the different mefarshim throughout time. And then I do try to look at all the different types of more modern sources uh, that are found on the VBM, the virtual Beit Midrash online, and, you know, the different teachers that I've had over the years that I've really found that speak to me tremendously. And a a lot of that information is found in the footnotes uh within this book
0: that's 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 great the one of the things that i think we've talked maybe a little bit about but certainly want to elaborate upon is the relationship between jacob and his wives his four wives potentially two of them are are, are maidservants and wives you get into that in, in the book what was the relationship that he had with these wives and and how Did it impact the relationship he had with the children and and the children's characteristics and development as a whole?
1: Right. One of the the questions that I had when I started to write the book was the relationship of Yaakov and his wives is clearly you know the beginning of the story because without without understanding that relationship we can't actually understand how he relates to any of his children or even what his children feel and are going through because they're reflecting back on their parents which is why even though this really is a book of the tribes chapter one is the relationship of Yaakov and his wives and then before we do the maids servant children, there is a whole discussion of Yaakov and his relationship to Bilhah and Zilpa, because everybody's a reaction to the the way that the household is running, right? The children of the maidservants, they understand that they're second-class citizens and they see that within the relationship of their father to their mother and the relationship of Bilhan Zelpa to Rachel and to Leah as well. And the entire relationship that Yaakov has with Yosef versus the children of Leah is reflected upon the different ways that we understand the relationship or the preference, I would say, of Yaakov to Rachel. So the entire first chapter is really this debate and discussion of how much does he prefer Rachel to Leah, meaning is Leia actually hated versus feeling hated or just is because she's the secondary wife or the one he doesn't really want to be married to or didn't plan to marry originally. She feels that way, even if he does, you know, show some love towards her. But it's all reflected in the relationship of the children. And what the book tries to show is that Ruving takes it so personally as that first child that's born, the realization that his mother isn't loved, the realization he isn't loved the way he feels that he should be loved. And the question is, even, is he trying to fight? For his mother's attention, who's so busy trying to get the attention of Yaakov that she kind of neglects him as well, becomes part of the question. And everything to understanding Ruvein is understanding how he feels that he's not getting, you know, the, the status that he should be getting as the oldest child of Yaakov because he's the son of Leia. And we see that reflected in Shimon and Levi, the anger that's in Shimon and Levi, the discussion of how they react to Dina being taken, where the Posseb tells us, the verse says, Says she's the daughter of Leah and you have to say what do you mean why does it have to tell us the daughter of Leah That's that's very clear because she's the daughter of Leah seems to be the entire message of the story. Shimon and Levi the other children of Leah have to step up because Yaakov seems to not be stepping up. Maybe he would have done differently if she was the daughter of Rachel so we understand that everything about the way the Shvatim seem to develop is a reaction to the relationship that Yaakov has with their mothers and that's why the book had to begin with that discussion which certainly, again, there's nuance in exactly what those relationships were. But there's a clear in the psukim that he preferred Rachel to Leah. He therefore preferred Rachel's children. The fascinating ending, of course, is that leadership goes to Yehuda at the end of the day and not to Yosef, even though he does get leadership, but not in the same way. And that's kind of this fascinating twist ending at the end of the story.
0: I do want to pick up on the theme of leadership. It's a very fascinating, important part of the book and about the tribes as a whole. But before I get there, I just want to pick up on something which is in the subtitle and then it's something that we can we can touch on within the book itself. The subtitle is Twelve Brothers and the Destiny of Israel. So there were, there were 12 brothers and there was also one sister, Dina. How does Dina, how does she play within the book, play within the story? How did you think about this? Because she's not one of the 12 tribes, yet she is one of the children of Jacob.
1: Right. No, it's a great question because I debated for a long time to have a chapter on Dina within the book. Um, I think that if in the future, not the book I'm working on now, but the, the one after that might be the women of Sefer Brishy, um, and uh, then Dina will get a, her chapter there. But one of the reasons why I didn't put Dina in was because, first of all, the unity of the book being about the 12 brothers, and Dina's not really in any story other than that one story, which is actually really, to some extent within the book, a Shimon and Levi story. And one of the struggles that I had with Dina is that we don't have the continuation of the Dina story. We don't know what happens to Dina, and we certainly therefore don't have the continuation of her children throughout Tanakh. So because we didn't have that, it didn't fit within the realm of this book, um, because it wouldn't have been a second chapter to write. Um, And I did find interesting, and I did put it within the book, Chazal continue her story through Shimon, the discussion of, did Shimon marry her? Did Shimon marry her daughter? Is there a daughter that... That was born to Dina. So that actually is reflected in the Shimon chapter where there's a fascinating ending to that Dina story through the words of Chazal, not, of course, in the Pesukim themselves. And that's why Dina actually didn't make it into the book. Also, the book was too long at that point uh, to put her in. Um, But I do think that she is a fascinating character that may make more sense to be in a book that reflects upon people like Tamar uh, and also the Imahot. um, And, uh, you know, stay tuned. Hopefully that will, will come one day.
0: We'll stay tuned. Maybe we'll get more of a taster at the end where you can tell us about your your next project, which I'm looking forward to. We were just talking before I asked that question about leadership, about Reuven vying for leadership, about Yehuda, about Judah ultimately getting the leadership role. But there are other potential brothers who who could have and in some cases did become the leader. How do you think about leadership within the context of the 12 brothers and then their subsequent descendants? Who became the leader and what was that struggle like?
1: Yeah, so it's a fascinating question. So there's a, a famous midrash that I teach at when I'm doing Sefer Shoftim, which says that God gave every one of the tribes an ability to become the leader at some point. And then when you follow through that midrash to see if we take that literally, you know, you don't actually see that all of them get a real piece of leadership, but they get like little tastes of it. Like for example, Naftali, the example would be Barak, who's a general in the army under Devorah. I don't know if I would call that full leadership, even though Chazal do list him as one of the judges per se, Devorah and Barak being together, but they all do have some sort of taste of leadership. And some of that leadership might just be within their tribe itself versus over all of Am Yisrael. And what you see within the picture is that at the end of the day, even though Yaakov may favor Yosef, he does see that the the assumed leader of the group is Yehuda. And Yehuda stands up in such a strong way. One of my favorite parts of Sefer Brishi, which I take a long time in the book to go through, is the speech and the encounter, I would say, of Yehuda and Yosef by Yigash Yehuda when he basically takes Yosef down. And it's such a manipulation, and there are so many things within that to discuss of how he really lies to Yosef but somehow tricks him into, you know, crying. I mean, Yosef has all the advantage in the world there. He's the leader. They don't even know it's Yosef. He could kill them on the spot, and Yehuda brings him to tears and, of course, makes him reveal, unclear if he meant to at that point, to reveal that he's Yosef. So Yehuda clearly has that gvura aspect to him, that strength aspect to him, and that we see in Sefer Bereshit, the brothers of Eishmua have They always listen to him, and even Yaakov listens to him. He's the one, Reuven tries, but he's the one to convince Yaakov to let him take down Binyamin and take responsibility. But he doesn't just talk the talk, he actually stands up and takes responsibility for Binyamin when he's almost taken. So you see Yehuda you know, deserving the leadership role. And therefore, throughout Tanakh, he's not the only leader that we have, but certainly Malchus is given to him and we have strong leaders that come from him. You know, we have Atsniel, we certainly say for Shoftim, and we have, of course, David and Shlomo, right? And Maluchas is destined for Yehuda, you know, in the future as well. But we do have a lot of other leadership tribes. So Yosef, as I keep mentioning, when Yehuda doesn't step up, it's always Yosef that steps up. And there's this question that I say in the book about the good and the bad of the Yosef Desire for leadership. On the one hand, and say for Brishit, it allows him to pick himself up in every environment. He's in jail; he could pick himself up. He's a slave in Potifar's house; he could pick himself up because he so badly wants to lead and he so badly wants to be on top. And that's an incredible trait to be able to pick yourself up. And it's say for Shoftim when Yehuda's told Yehuda Yaaleh, Yehuda, get up and lead. And Yehuda really doesn't. It's the Yosef characters, the Yiftah, the Giddot, the Devora that keeps popping up in say for Shoftim, and of course that leads to a you know, battle between the Yehuda and the Yosef when we have Yeravam versus, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Rachavam, which is Shlomo's son from Yehuda, so you see the Yehuda versus Yosef constantly throughout Tanakh, but when Yehuda and Yosef work together, that's when we are the strongest, of course, because we have two leadership tribes that that come through, and even within the Yosef, you have the Menasha versus the Ephraim leadership, which also comes through, Ephraim being the younger brother, but Ephraim being destined for leadership, as Yaakov says, and you have stronger leaders coming from Ephraim, like yoshua and Devorah, versus the Less strong characters, I would say, like the Gidzon and the Yiftah coming from Menashe. So those tribes seem to really have tremendous leaderships throughout but again, a different form of leadership than we have with Yehuda. a little bit more of a desire for leadership, which can get corrupted, but on the other hand, stepping up when they're needed, which is something very positive, which then moves us to the Binyamin leadership character. Malchus is given, actually kingdom is given to Binyamin first. Sha'ul is from Binyamin. So you have characters from Binyamin that are leaders. Ehud ben Gera, one of our judges, also from, from Binyamin. And the question, of course, of the base of being mostly in the tribe of Binyamin, Leadership is also given to Binyamin. And I love that when you look on the map, Binyamin is the middle of Yehuda, meaning Yehuda is below, Yosef is on top. They seem to be the bridge. And that's exactly what Moshe says about Binyamin in his bracha. He's like the between the shoulders, right? He's like the guy in between. He's the one that kind of combines the Yosef because he's the brother of Yosef, but he also has this bond with Yehuda, Yehuda who saves him in Breshi. And he can combine Am Yisrael in a very interesting way. And I think that's why starts with him. I think that's why the base of Migdash is in his territory and he has a different form of leadership, a little bit of a weaker form of leadership, but he's a leadership too. And then you have the Reuven leadership who wants to lead, but fails that leadership over and over and over again, but can't let go of the dream of leadership and ends up moving to the other side of the, the Jordan River of the Yardane and ends up being the first into Galos because he can't let go of that dream for leadership. So we certainly see that there's strong you know, leadership in many of the different tribes. And then, of course, the other tribes have leaders that are more localized leaders, like within their tribe. When there's an issue within their tribe, somebody uh, might stand up from a different one of the tribes. But our main leaders normally come from Yehuda, from Ephraim and Menashe, and then from Binyamin.
0: We mentioned that the structure is that you first have a chapter on the the, the tribes themselves, 12 brothers. And then the subsequent chapter is, as we're just talking about, the subsequent characters from those tribes within the the Tanakh. One would think that that generally the the interpretive arc or era goes that one understands the tribes and then from there gets a better understanding of the later descendants. Was it ever also the the case where you got a better understanding of the tribes themselves from their descendants, or did it only go one way?
1: So for sure, Binyamin, it went the other way, which I found really interesting, because in Binyamin, in Breshit, in in Breishit, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in Genesis, he has no personality. He's like this quiet kid that is extremely passive. I think I mentioned the only thing he does that's active is cry on his brother's shoulder. That's it. Other than that, he's, he's uh, you know, his father doesn't let him leave the home, um, and then Yehuda takes him, and they debate over him, and then Yosef, you know, wants to make him into his slave for life, and Yehuda has to protect him. And then when he meets up with, with Yosef, he cries and that's it. Like he does nothing in the entire safe of Breishi. And it always reminds me of like that younger sibling, the younger sibling that doesn't really have, or can't show that personality within the family because he's the baby to everyone and everybody babies him and everybody talks about him and kind of makes him do whatever it is that they think he's supposed to do, but who he really is doesn't come out. So I actually found that Binyamin, I had to write in the opposite way because in Sefer Brashid, he was incredibly passive. Um, but then when we get to some of his characters, you see those personality traits as well. Like you have, let's say, for example, Ehud, who's one of our judges, but he acts on his own. He acts in a more of like a friendly way, makes friends with the king by bringing him presents and then sneakily, you know, uh, ends up killing the king. And then after the fact, gathers the people uh, and shall also, at, at least in the beginning, is a much more he's hiding. He doesn't know that he's supposed to be king or he doesn't know how to be king, um, where you have that, you know, more of a quieter personality in the Binyamin characters. Jonathan to me, is my favorite Binyamin character, who steps aside happily to let his best friend David take over the kingdom, which was really his. He was the heir to the throne. Um, so I had to use later stories to shed light on the Binyamin true personality um, because in Safer Vreshi, I think it didn't shine through as much as it was supposed to. But hints to it, I thought, were in what and what Moshe says about him. And the comparison to a wolf was really what started me off on saying there's got to be something more there in the Binyamin character because you don't see that, the sneakiness of the Binyamin character in in, Sefer Brashid at all, but you do see it in the later stories. So I had to use all that material to try to develop who uh, Binyamin is 100%.
0: While researching and writing this book, did any of the insights or stories change your personal perspective on biblical narratives or Jewish history?
1: That's an interesting question. So I researched this book for so many years. um, So it's hard to actually narrow down. Um, And the years of my research of this book were really fundamental years of where I went from being a student to a teacher. Um, But I think that what it gave me was an appreciation for the characters of the Torah. You know, we're, we're very often taught about the characters in the Torah in a more one-dimensional way. You're a good character, you're a bad character, you know, you have a specific type of personality. Um, but what this book allowed me to do is to demonstrate the multiple ways of looking at each of the personalities and the people in it. And the goal wasn't really to change how you look at Jewish history, but to relate to the characters. And allow them to affect you as a person. So I can learn from Ruvain when I'm going through, you know, a type of story that would be a very Ruvain story, or I can gain confidence from Yehuda when, you know, I'm I'm going through a time where I have to stand up for something and there's the Yehuda character. So different people can relate to these different, you know, different tribes. I found people have come over to me after reading the book, like, Oh I'm so Benjamin. Oh I'm so like they'll they'll pick one that they feel like they related to the most, which is certainly one way to go or to within each of the stories to relate different aspects of your life to the different events they went through and the different ways to look at how they reacted to those events, to relate that to the way that you look at the world and the way that you look at your life. So I certainly see this as a book that took me a very long time to collect all the material and affects my way of looking at Tanakh completely. Because when you look at Tanakh as a full picture, as opposed to one story at a time, it changes the way that you look at the entire story of Jewish history and you realize that even till today we're reliving these stories of the Torah over and over again um, and every time you know that you learn the Torah, I think the messages of what's going on in the world today are certainly coming through every single one of those stories as well.
0: you mentioned the term d- dimensionality I want to zoom in a little bit on that. One of the things that some people say about the biblical text and its description of characters is that there's not really a depiction of, of the inner worlds of, of the biblical characters. Maybe in some ways one could understand that as being one dimensional or there could be other ways one could describe it. Do you agree with that? Do you think that the the biblical text is really giving us a sense of the inner world of the characters? Do you think that's more provided by the rabbinic interpretation, the later medieval interpretation? How do you think about the dimensionality of the characters and the description of their inner worlds?
1: So, I think that both of what you're saying is true, because it really depends on the character. You know, there are certain characters that we hear their entire world to some extent. Like one of the things I love about, let's say, Yoshua, is that you see Yoshua in the Torah itself. You see him you know, in Shimos, you see him in Bamibar, and then you see him grow by the time you get to Sefer Yoshua, and you see him as a young child versus an older adult who's leading the Jewish people. So you really can feel, you feel when the Torah says over and over Chazak Like you feel like you, like you just want to like wave a flag and be like, Yoshua, sure, you got this. You're okay. You're going to make it. But you understand his beginning of his story to the end of his story. Most characters, you see them in like one moment in time. And when you see them in one moment in time, you don't know what was the beginning, what was the end. You know, we struggle with that with Abraham, right? We meet him when he's 75. Well, what happened before that? What's the beginning of the story? So to some extent, Chazal sometimes fills in the blanks for us. And we have to understand what these midrashim are telling us. Is this the accurate story of what happened to them? Or is it a message of just telling us what we're supposed to know about the beginnings of their story? You know, is it that Avram was really thrown into a Kivshana Esh? Or is it that we're referencing a story from Mishael, Hanania, Nazaria, from Sefer Daniel to let us know that Avram probably went through a time where everyone believed in Avodah Zarah and multiple gods. And he had to stand up and say, I believe in this one God. and, And he was probably put in very uncomfortable situation. So there are times where we use Hazal to fill in those missing pieces, and then we have to understand what's Hazal actually telling us, right? Meaning there's the story, but then there's the story behind that story, which is what's the message that Hazal is bringing through. So I think when you have characters, which is what I was trying to do from this book, where you only see them in one snippet, but if I now say, well, they're part of the greater picture of the tribe, well, now I can add layers to them because I can create this bigger picture of the tribe has a personality. And if I attribute that personality to the person, I've actually now given a backstory to the person that wasn't within the story within the text itself. So that's part of the fun of this book, because it creates backstories for people that weren't provided within the text of the Torah, but actually is provided just by the fact that the Torah let us know that he's from a very specific tribe.
0: We had mentioned before that the character of Benjamin, of, of Binyamin, that he doesn't do very much. We said that he just cries really as an action. I wonder if to expand on this and to think more broadly, are any of the 12 brothers supporting characters or are they all main characters in the story?
1: Um, in Sefer Breshi, there certainly are the more supporting characters right the Yisachar the Zvalin that we know almost nothing about um, and even Danav Taligad and Nasher, the four children of the maid servant, they're referenced a lot in the group you know the Bnei Amahot did whatever they did um, and very often it's also very behind the scenes uh, in terms of something that between them and Yosef you know which is also very ambiguous of exactly what that was they had a good relationship with a bad relationship with him but when it becomes comes part of the bigger story of what should we do to Yosef that day in the field? Their voices are missing. Or, you know, when Yaakov is being confronted by Reuven and then later Yehuda to take Benyamin down to save the family, those voices aren't there either, right? Chazals stick in Shimon and Levi in different places, but they don't really stick in Yisachar and Zebulun anywhere. So we certainly do have the louder characters and we have the ones that are the more behind the scene characters. But as I always like to say, if you have a group of leaders with no nation to follow, you're leading nothing. So part of the picture of Am Yisrael is that we have, by definition, the tribes that become the louder tribes, the ones that lead, the ones that we hear more about. And then you have the characters that are the more behind the scenes, but they're significant. They're the army, they're the ones who fight, right? If you go through Sefer Shovdim, it's normally the Zacher, the Zvullen, the Naftalis, right? The ushers, that's the ones who are going out into the battlefield, that's the Am, that's the people that are doing the things that we need them to do. Um, And certainly for every leader, we need to have the people follow and don't revolt and don't do, you know, the bad things that we have in history. And that's really the story of those types of tribes. I mean, Dunn has a little bit of a different story, but the Issachar, the Zavulins, the, the Naftalis, the Asher's, you know, those are the storylines of, yeah, the quieter characters, but the ones that are so significant in, you know, we, we, we know that numbers matter and that people supporting the leaders matter um, throughout Jewish history. So that's that's their story, which is a beautiful story, too.
0: Yeah, very very beautiful perhaps we could have and should have discussed this and mentioned at the beginning but here, here we are now who's the intended audience of the book who are you looking to reach when you when you wrote this book
1: so I think the intended audience of the book are the people that I teach, right? Meaning, which is a very large group because I teach at Stern College, as I said, for the last 20 years. So the women that I teach are certainly what I wrote the curriculum for um, are are women who love to learn Torah and love to analyze the text of the Torah and want to see these different layers in terms of learning the Torah. Um, but I also teach globally. I give shiurim around the world. Um, I'm, I'm very often a scholar in residence or giving shirim in different communities. And, and there's so many different people that, that I meet in terms of men and women in terms of teaching Torah in that way. And the audience is really all those different types of people that I would teach Torah to. And for some of them, it's people who have tremendous textual skills. And for some of them, it isn't. The book is understandable for everybody um, in terms of your knowledge of the text of the Torah versus you don't have so much background in it. This book is really understandable for all. But if for somebody who has a passion in really understanding these stories of the Torah, understanding the stories of the 12 tribes, and loves that analysis of personalities and putting together the psychology of understanding people and human behavior and how that plays a role in the way that we behave. I think anyone that has an interest in that, uh, this book is for you.
0: What do you hope readers will take away from travel blueprints? Is there a particular message or insight you wish to impart?
1: I think there are many, actually. Um, one of them that I is probably the biggest goal of all of my teaching is, is just love Torah. Um, and to love the fact that everybody can have a voice through Torah, because there's so many different ways of understanding every single story in the Torah. And every story has layers. Every story has nuances. Every story has ambiguities that change the way you look at the text. My students get very frustrated with me where they're like, so what do you think happened? And I'm like... I don't know, one of five things happened and I have no idea, but we learn messages from every single one of these versions and there's times where learning the story gives us strength, sometimes learning the story actually makes us understand struggle um, can make us understand jealousy, can make us understand emotions that we feel and the goal of the, the book is actually to understand that all of this, every human emotion that we feel comes through the Torah itself and Probably one of the tribes have felt that way, and one of the tribes has experienced that. And to me, it, it's a it's a book that should be used to help people to grow as a person, to see the struggle, and to see the growth that many of them go through. Yehuda doesn't start off very good in safer Brashit but by the time you finish, hopefully, you know there is a redemption for Yehuda and an excitement for Yehuda, and you can feel that. You can feel tshuva. You could feel you know repentance through the book, and you can feel how sometimes people go on the wrong path. And really, you got to get back on the right path. And you feel that through the different tribes. So I think my number one goal is everyone should love Torah and love learning Torah and see themselves through the Torah and see your own creativity through the Torah and your own ability to interpret the text in different ways, but also to get all the different powerful messages that come through about love, about jealousy, about strife, about, you know, challenges that, that we face on a daily basis, which all comes through this book.
0: That's, that's lovely. I really I like that that summarization and, and what you just said. We we could sit here and, and speak for, for many hours. The book is almost 300 pages, but for the sake of our listeners, for our sake, we, we won't spend much more time. Is there anything else that, that you want to share? Anything I didn't ask that you'd like to tell our listeners about?
1: Uh, about the book, I certainly have lots to say. I actually want to highlight one more character from the book, and then we can also talk about other things. Um, but the one character that I think I have a more unique approach about uh, is the character of Dunn. Um, Dunn doesn't have so much of a story in, say, for Breishi, but the Dunn characters, and I think this reflects on the question you asked me a little bit ago about you learn from the the future characters back onto the original character, they have this very and more of a rebellious feel to them, more of a loner feel to them. You have the Shimshon, who's a good character, but also a very strange character. Um, and he doesn't never seems to get support from the Jewish people. You have the Makala, the one who curses or curses in the name of God, whatever he does, who his mother is from Dunn. Um, and you have Dun being like in... In the bottom of Eretz Israel originally, right next to Yehuda, but then somehow doesn't get his land, so he's got to go all the way up north, and he's separated from the other children of the maidservants. And his story is just a little bit strange. And I and I hypothesize in the book this theory that um, maybe perhaps um, Don went through a transition, and this is what we're feeling through his descendants, which is when he was first born. It seems that Rachel thinks this is the way she's going to have children, and this is the child. Dun God has judged me, and this is my child. And you wonder for a short period of time if Dun got a taste. Of the favoritism done got the taste of i'm the son of rachel and that would bring in yaakov's attention as well and then it takes many years we don't know how many years between the different tribes that there are when they're all being born but understand done and then there's of course naftali who's born and then there's god and asher and then there's Issachar and zavullen all before yosef is born and therefore there's a long period of time that Dunn kind of has that older child, Rachel's son status uh, that then gets taken away from him when Yosef is born. And I always wonder if that puts something into Dunn. He is the leader of the maidservant children. He's also the oldest of them. um, And therefore, he's the head of their degel, of their encampment. But there's something about him that he's on the one hand, their leader, but on the other hand, he's separate from them. There's something different about him. And there's a rebellious streak in him that you find through his descendants, which always makes me wonder, wonder if that's what took place within the home of Rachel it's like Dan and Tully were her babies and then all of a sudden now you're back in Bella's tent because I've had children of my own and that's a theory that I put out there in the book that I haven't seen anywhere else but to me it makes sense that when Rachel thinks that that's her child that this is the way she's having children um, that that would be the relationship she would have with Dan, and possibly again Yaakov having a greater relationship with Dan. Um, and we also find a lot of partnership between Dan and Yehuda which I think therefore gets reflected as Yehuda being the younger, the youngest at that time of uh, Leah, because Yesachim's will are only born later, Dan being the next one who's born, the oldest, therefore, maybe of Rachel, hanging out with Yehuda for a bit of time when he has that elevated status, which is why there's so many partnerships of the Yehuda and the Dan, you know, for the Mishkan and possibly even according to Devraya in the Beit uh, this relationship of the Dan and the Yehuda. So to me, that's one of a unique piece within the book of trying to play out um, the done character being different than everybody else um, but that's certainly one thing i wanted to bring out
0: i appreciate that and as i said we, we could there's a lot more of course people should certainly go out get the book read it there, there's a lot of insight here which is very important really helps give a better understanding of all the characters mentioned and i, I really do recommend it so we've got we've discussed the book to our, the best of our ability. And now I want to ask the, the closing question we always ask on New Books Network. What are you working on next?
1: So I've actually already started writing my next book. Um, it's a new curriculum that I've written. Uh, I read, I actually wrote the curriculum over COVID, um, but I really held on to it for a bit. And I just started teaching it. Now I taught it on Zoom for a little bit, but then I I held it and I've been teaching it now to my GPETS class. Uh, again, the graduate program Advanced Hamad and Tenach Studies at Stern College, which I run. And it is a new curriculum of looking just at the what we would call the villains of the Torah. Um, and that's what this next book is hopefully going to be. I've already started writing a number of chapters in it. Um, but it's trying to see the nuance within the characters that we, again, normally don't look at or spend time focusing on. And we look at them as kind of the contrast to the good character, right? So if I'm thinking about the character of Lot, I learn about him, but I'm really learning about him in the context of Avraham. But what if I just learned about Lot in the context of Lot? Or what if I just learned about Tarach to understand the messages of why he dominates the end of chapter 11 of Sefer Genesis? Like why, why of the book of Genesis? Like why do we care about Tarach? So I started to write this book on Kayan, Tarach, Lot, Yishmael, Esav, and we'll continue along to see, you know, how many I can write about in terms of uh, this book. And is it just going to be limited to Genesis or are we going to move forward? The curriculum goes on to Billam and to Balak and to, um, you know, so my Korach and Datan and Aviram and so many others. So we'll see what ends up in the book. But uh, trying to understand the messages of the villain. And I actually... Create this book. I think the way that I'm writing it very similar to this one, where each one will have two chapters. One is, I would say, the more normative, traditional way of looking at the villain as this evil villain. And very often, I find people don't even know why we think that they're so evil. So even just building up that character of showing how within the psukim, within the text, within the the commentators, within Chazal, there's really this very evil way of looking at each of these characters. And then the second chapter to show the more nuanced. Perspective and to show how some of them really had potential and some of them really have what we can learn from. And I'll be honest, from both chapters, we have a lot to learn from because we can learn from where people go off the path and we can learn from, you know, where people struggle and where people, you know, have to make choices that are difficult, which we see within these two different ways of looking at the villain. Um, And within our world, we certainly have evil within this world as we are experiencing right now, within the, within the world right now. And we certainly do have a lot of people that have, bad traits, but they certainly have a lot of good in them as well. And to try to see that through the eyes of the Torah of looking at those characters that we normally don't focus on and trying to see what we can learn from those characters. So that's my new project. And I'm having a really great time um, working on that. It might take a little bit till the book comes out. Um, but I've certainly given Rim on these different topics, and I'm teaching it uh, as a course.
0: That sounds great. I don't know if it's sacrilegious or, or wrong me to say it, it reminds me of, of, of Wicked. Of, of the play of the book *Wicked*, So either way, I'm very much looking forward to that and hopefully we'll be able to chat on that when that one comes up.
1: Sounds like a great idea, but 100% where Wicked takes a character that you thought was evil, and actually by the end of the play, she's not evil at all. Um, uh, I don't think that's what we're going to accomplish within these books because all of these characters are rejected characters by the end. They don't become part of Am Yisrael, but they do create their own nations, and they, they do get a lot of time within the book of the Torah, meaning there are so many psukim that are dedicated to hearing about their story. So clearly, the Torah didn't have to do that unless there were messages for us to learn. So the question of why do I hear so much about these characters, especially once they go to different places? Like, why do I hear about their children, their grandchildren? Why do I hear about their struggle? If they're just rejected at the end, clearly their story matters for us. Uh, and we have what to learn. So that's the goal of the book.
0: I appreciate that. Th- thank you so much. This, this has been great, a great, really, really fascinating, enriching conversation.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate being on. Thank you so much.
0: We've been talking to Dr. Nahama Price, author of Tribal Blueprints, published by Magid in 2020. Happy reading, my friends.